Good evening. We are glad you're back tonight. Thank you for being here. Hope you had a great afternoon, a great day. And tonight we're going to be looking at John chapters 14 through 16 in our study together. I do want to say how much we appreciate your presence tonight. It has been a beautiful day, beautiful spring day, and I look forward to many more beautiful days like today. Thank you to Billy for leading our song service tonight, songs about heaven. We're talking a little bit about heaven tonight. And so in our study tonight, as we look at John chapters 14 through 16, I want to begin by just emphasizing the fact that beginning in, really, go back to chapter 13, through chapter 17, that is a unit. And so when you begin to look at chapters 13, 13 through 17, you need to look at them as a unit of Scripture, contextually speaking. And so we're going to do that in just a moment or two. As we begin our study tonight, I want to encourage you. I appreciate so much, Jared, every Wednesday night, kind of giving a little prelude to the lesson, the upcoming lesson. I hope that you've been studying and reading as uh, we've looked at key chapters in Scripture. We're going to plan. We're going to try to do that all year. And uh, it's been a rich and rewarding study for me. Hope it has been for you. And uh, next year, I'm sure we'll do something else. But appreciate so much you following along with us in our journey. Tonight, as we think about chapters 14 through 16 of the book of John, the title of our message is In the Shadow of the Cross. Next week, we're going to continue this same theme, In the Shadow of the Cross. You have to understand that Jesus is now talking with the cross looming before Him. In the latter part of chapter 13, He is announced again that He will be leaving them. Peter, as you well know, is concerned about the Lord leaving and wanting to be with Him. Peter, as you well know, talks about the fact he's willing to lay down his life for the sake of Christ. And I really believe in his heart of hearts, he genuinely believed if push came to shove, he would die for the cause. Unfortunately, that's not, that's not how it played out. So you pick up in chapter 14, and there is what I would call a gracious promise. Now, Jesus begins by saying, Let not your heart be troubled. Familiar words. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus had been establishing the fact that He was deity. Over the course of about three, three and a half years, the Lord Jesus had taught some things that were, in many respects, unparalleled. You remember in chapter 7, verse 46, it was said of Jesus, No man ever spoke like this man. Jesus, of course, in chapter 6, had identified Himself as the bread of life. Many of the disciples on that occasion went back, walked no more with Him. Jesus then turned to the twelve and asked them, Will you also go away? And Simon Peter, of course, speaks up. And Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life eternal. So they had been privileged to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Him over and over again. And no doubt the message had resonated with them. And then the great miracles that he, that he had performed. In the book of John, there are seven very specific signs cataloged by John the Apostle. Those signs were intended to bring about belief or faith in the minds of people. 
You remember in chapter 5, Jesus would say in about verse 37, The very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Everything that Jesus did throughout His earthly ministry was in tandem with the Father. They were on, they were on par with one another in the sense that their goal was the same, redemption. And so in John chapter 14, Jesus begins by speaking words pertaining to heaven. Again, He said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. And then, note if you would, what Jesus said. In My Father's house are many mansions, or many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And then Jesus said, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You know, the Bible talks about heaven as being a real place. You know, there are a lot of folks, there are skeptics in the world today. When you talk about heaven and eternity, they laugh with derision. They scoff at the idea. And yet, we can trust what Jesus said, can't we? So you think about the reality of this place called heaven. Peter tells us that we have an inheritance. It is incorruptible, it's undefiled, it fades not away. And he said, it is reserved in heaven for you. Heaven is the dwelling place of God, isn't it? And you think about Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, where He welds all authority. I think about Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 when he spoke what we typically call the model prayer. You remember he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Father resides in heaven. Revelation chapter 4, we have a picture of the throne room of God. We were singing a moment ago about heaven. The fact that loved ones are watching and waiting. One of the beautiful aspects of heaven is to know that it will be populated with people that we've grown close to through the years, that we've loved and appreciated, spent time with day in and day out. To know that there are some who have gone before us and they're waiting for us. So the reality of heaven, the place called heaven, but then what about the permanence of heaven? To me, the beautiful aspect of heaven is that it's not like the world in which we live today, this world is wearing out and running down. As a matter of fact, the world in which we live has a terminal day, doesn't it? And yet we're talking about everlasting life. Paul said in Titus chapter 1, verse 2, that we live in hope of life eternal, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the world began. To think that we will one day step out onto the plains of eternity, we will be ushered into heaven where we will spend the ceaseless ages of eternity. No more sickness, no more sorrow, no more separations, but rather we will be there with God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, the Holy Spirit, and with His people. So Jesus is talking about heaven. And as we grow older in life, the thought of heaven becomes much more precious, doesn't it? Because we understand that is the abode of the righteous. 
You know, the Bible says we have here no abiding city, but we seek that city to come. It was said of the patriarchs of the past that they looked for a city which had foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's what we're looking for, isn't it? A place called heaven. But then, what about the way to heaven? I would submit to you that Jesus is the person of salvation and He is the pathway to salvation. He makes that abundantly clear in chapter 14. So pick up with me if you would. In verse 4, Jesus said, Where I go, you know the way you know. And Thomas, of course, said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? And then in verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me or except through me. Jesus is the means by which we enjoy a relationship with the Father. He is the one that has brought us into fellowship with God the Father. You remember, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul said God would have all men to be saved, come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he said there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So Jesus is our link to the Father. And there are folks today that they have the idea that there may be other routes to heaven, there may be others that can give us access to heaven, but Jesus said, look, I'm the way exclusively. I'm the way, the truth, the life. There is no life outside of Christ, is there? You remember 1 John chapter 5? When John said, He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son of God does not have life. So life is located in Christ Jesus. And what a great thought that is. The apostles understood that. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said before the Sanhedrin council, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Simply identifying for us that the pathway to the Father runs through Jesus. He is the source of our salvation. He is the one who gives life to people. Spiritual life, He's given us physical life. Now, there's a second thing I want you to look at with me in our study tonight. First, there is what I called the gracious promise. But then secondly, there is the guarantee of the paraclete. And by that, I simply mean the comforter. Now, again, I want you to think about the people to whom Jesus is addressing here. Jesus is specifically talking to the apostles. Now, are there things that we can take and make application from in chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16? Well, the answer would be yes. But with regard to the paraclete or the comforter, Jesus is specifically talking to His apostles, His disciples. So first of all, let's ask this question. Well, let's just first emphasize the promise of the comforter. And I would phrase this in a couple of questions. Number one, to whom was the promise made with regard to the Comforter? Who did Jesus say would receive the Comforter? The answer is the apostles. So, first, to understand that this promise was made to the apostles. 
And then the second question would be, the second question, where we think about first and foremost, to whom it was made. They were promised to receive the Holy Spirit, but then I guess the second question would be, when would they receive the Holy Spirit? Let's just look at a couple of passages very quickly. In verse 25 of chapter 14, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, or the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Drop down if you would, look at chapter 15, verse 26. When the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. Jesus again speaking specifically to the apostles. And He is saying that they're going to be the recipients of the Comforter or the Holy Spirit. Now, down in chapter 16, in verse 12, again Jesus said, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Back in verse 7, He had said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, or it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Comforter, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. So, Jesus is promising the apostles the Holy Spirit. Well, when would they receive the Holy Spirit? They would be the recipients of the Spirit on Pentecost Day. You remember in Luke chapter 24, Jesus had given the Great Commission. He said that repentance and remission of sins would be preached in His name beginning at Jerusalem. And then He said that they would be witnesses to these things. The instructions in verse 49, however, were that they were to tarry in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus, of course, again prior to departing to be with the Father in heaven, Jesus said, but you shall be witnesses unto me. The Holy Spirit would come upon them. They would be witnesses unto Him, beginning in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. We turn over to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we have a record of Pentecost Day. The disciples are assembled in the city of Jerusalem. They're there to observe Pentecost. And the Bible tells us that there was an outpouring of the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles. And you remember in chapter 2, verse 4, the Bible says that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Who was he talking about there? The apostles. So, to understand, there was the promise of the Comforter. But now, secondly, and I wish we had more time to develop all this, but secondly, the purpose of the Comforter. Why did Jesus promise the apostles the Holy Spirit of the Comforter? Well, He tells us. Go back again and look, if you would. In chapter 14, verse 26, there were two reasons why the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles. But the Helper, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, 
He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. All right, first and foremost, the Holy Spirit would be given to the apostles to remind them of things that they had learned from the Lord throughout His ministry. The second reason they would be the recipients of the baptismal measure of the Holy Spirit was so that He might reveal unto them His will. So there would be the reminder of His will and then the revelation of His will. Turn over again and look at chapter, look at chapter 16. And pick up in verse 7 if you would. In verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away, or expedient that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I'll send Him to you. And when He has come, here's what He's going to do. Number one, He will convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment. Of sin, because they do not believe Me. Of righteousness, because I go to My Father, and they do not believe, or rather, they will see Me no more. But then he said, of judgment because the ruler of the world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, listen to what he said, he will guide you into all truth. And Jesus said he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will tell you things to come. So the Holy Spirit was given to the apostles on Pentecost Day. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And you know and I know that they preached the gospel in its fullness for the very first time, didn't they? And they began talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of the Christ. Emphasizing the fact that Jesus had been raised, that He, had now, that he is now coronated in heaven. He sits at the Father's right hand that He has been identified as both Lord and Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the one to rule and reign in the hearts and lives of people. Now Jesus said one of the works of the Holy Spirit, He would convict the world of sin. Well, in Acts chapter 2, the text says, when they heard this, they were cut or pricked in their heart. Well, what did that? What was the reason for the conviction? God's Word. The apostles were preaching an inspired message. And so they were cut or pricked in their hearts. And you remember the Hebrew writer said, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So they're convicted of sin and they cry out, men and brethren, what shall we do? So they were setting forth, they began setting forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. Now if you go back to Matthew chapter 16, Jesus had already talked about establishing the church. He said to Peter that he would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever he bound on earth would be bound in heaven. Whatever he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. The binding and loosing had already occurred. He was simply setting forth the terms of admission into the kingdom of God. So when they cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Under the supervision of the Holy Spirit, what did they say? Repent, be baptized. For what reason? For the remission of sins. Well, why were they convicted? Because of the Holy Spirit. 
Does the Holy Spirit convict people today of sin? Yes, it does. How so? Through this book that we call the Bible. Now, you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul makes the case for inspiration. And he said, Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. But then listen to this statement. He said, But God has revealed them to us through the Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. All Paul is saying there is, God has given revelation unto them, that is the apostles. They've taken that revelation, they have written it down for what purpose? So that we might have the law of Christ, the last will and testament of Jesus. So they were inspired men. And Peter said that we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. And you remember in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter said, holy men of God spoke as they were moved or borne along by the Holy Spirit. And the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is inspired of God. So as a result of the work of the Holy Spirit, in the first century the gospel was in men. They were the earthen vessels. Today, however, the gospel is in the book. We call it the Bible. So there was a divine purpose for the giving of the Holy Spirit to the apostles in the first century. When people obeyed the gospel in the first century, no one was standing to the side to hand them a Bible and say, oh, by the way, here's your Bible as your guide. The gospel, again, was in men. And so they're receiving revelation. Now, they were the writers of the New Testament. And you remember the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3 talked about how he had received revelation from God. And he took that revelation. You remember he said he wrote it down in a few words. Well, why did he write it? He said, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. The mystery he was talking about had to do with the church that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs of the same body through Christ. In chapter 5, Paul would say, Be not un unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we have the luxury today of having the completed Word of God. We have everything that we need to know pertaining to life and godliness. I've said it before and I'll say it again very quickly. When you pick up the Scriptures, there are facts to be believed. There are commands to be obeyed. There are promises to be enjoyed. We talked about heaven just a moment ago. We live in hope of life eternal. You remember the Apostle John said, 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise that He's promised us. What is that promise? Eternal life. And so we are blessed because of the work of the Apostles. So as I think about the guarantee of the paraclete, the Holy Spirit of the Comforter, to understand he's talking specifically to the apostles. And when he said to them that they would be guided into all truth, how then are we guided into all truth today? Through the Bible. That's why it's imperative that we read and study and meditate on the Scriptures. Unless you pick up the book, you're not going to know what the Bible teaches. It takes time and effort, doesn't it? We need to be like the psalmist of old who meditated on the law of Jehovah day and night. 
Now, there's a third thing I would share with you very quickly. And that is we are guarded by His peace. With that being said, I want to talk first about the place of imperfect peace. Do you have peace in your life? You know, there are some people that they enjoy a measure of peace. The peace that they enjoy is through the world. And the world is constantly changing. And so they're on an emotional roller coaster in many ways. They don't have the peace that Jesus is talking about in John 14 and John 16. So I mention the place of imperfect peace. I want you to listen to Jesus in verse 27 of chapter 14. Jesus said, My peace, or peace I leave with you. My peace, He said, I give to you. Now listen to this. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now Jesus had just said back in chapter 14, verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. The word troubled here means to agitate, to strike a person with fear or dread. It carries with it the idea of inward commotion, to take away a person's inner calm. Why is it that the world offers imperfect peace. I can tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, because as Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation, won't you? Turn over to chapter 16 very quickly. Look at chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Many of us here tonight we understand what Jesus is talking about, don't we? Have we not had tribulation, trials, tears in this life? The answer is yes. Why? Because we live in an imperfect world. And as we think about the place of imperfect peace, that place is the world. The world has nothing to offer us that will satisfy and bring about genuine peace and contentment in life. I promise you it doesn't. Now I know what the devil says. The devil says, look, you can have anything you want. You can have everything you want. But there's no peace in the world. And Jesus is saying, in the world, you will have tribulation. I wonder how many people tonight will go to bed having said goodbye to a loved one. Wonder how many people today learned that they have cancer, or that they have heart disease, or that they have some other dreaded illness or disease. Wonder how many people today suffered some type of debilitating accident from which they will never recover. Are there troubles and trials and tribulations in the world? Yes. And then temptation? Are we not constantly having to fight against the evil one. You know, Jesus identified him as the wicked one and the enemy in Matthew 13. He's identified as the tempter in Matthew chapter 4 at verse 3. 
Temptation is a common thing for those of us who live here on planet Earth. And so it can rob us of peace. But there is a place, a perfect peace. Where is the place of perfect peace? One word, Jesus. That's it. Go back again and look at chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. The beauty of obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ is recognized in the fact that as Paul said in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we have peace with God. We're no longer enemies. We're no longer alienated from God. But rather, we are reconciled people. We are redeemed people. And we have, as he said, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have peace with God, but Jesus here is also talking about, and I think stressing the peace of God. Listen again. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Turn over to chapter 16, verse 33 again. These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. If you want peace in your life, and you want perfect peace, it's only in Jesus. It's only in the Lord. The world dictates the emotions in the lives of so many people. But with God's people, there is this sense of inner calm and peace. You remember in Philippians chapter 4, Paul said that we're not to be anxious for anything, but rather with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. He said, let your request be made known unto God. And then he went on to say in verse 7, And the peace of God, which passes all knowledge, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. There's the idea right there. That in Christ, there is perfect peace. Now Jesus said, look, I've overcome the world. If Jesus could overcome the world, can we rise above the things of this world and ultimately enjoy the blessings of heaven? The answer is yes. You know, the beauty, one of the beautiful things about Scripture is transparency. God has made it abundantly clear His interest in us, hasn't He? I mean, God, God has a personal vested interest in us. We are the crown of His creation. And God wants peace and happiness for us. And God is saying, in me you can have peace. You remember Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 when He said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And what was the promise? Do you remember? He said, I will give you rest. The Lord Jesus can give you rest from the troubles and trials and tribulations and temptations of this life. So there is the place of imperfect peace, but more importantly, the place of perfect peace. It's in Jesus. The Bible says God would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants you to be saved. I promise you He does. 
Jesus went to the cross. Matter of fact, in John 15, Jesus said, Greater love has no man than this, than a man laid on his life for his friends. Jesus died for our sins. Would you come to Him tonight? I know you believe Jesus to be the Son of God. You wouldn't be here if you didn't. It might be that you've never acted upon your faith. You've never put it into action. Why not tonight come? Believing that Jesus is the Son of God, through repentance of sin and baptism into Christ, all your sins will be washed away. And you will enjoy the blessings, the blessings of being in God's family. You'll be a part of the church. And the beauty of that is that one day God has promised to save the church, but you've got to be in Christ to be in the church. Ephesians 5.23 If you're here tonight, maybe you're not faithful to His cause, listen, we're here to encourage. Our goal is heaven. And we want everyone to be in heaven together. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful to His cause, would you not tonight come and let us pray with you, for you, and leave here back in fellowship with God, fellowship with His people, and you can go to bed tonight in perfect peace. Why not come as we stand and sing? I bring my sins